and we're live. Uh, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Redesign Growth Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Ritwich Gautam, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Tim Rotolo. Uh, Tim, this is episode 19. Yeah. We're, we're just getting up on, on 20. Like once we once we get to twenty, I'll feel like you know we we've actually figured something out and we you know we got a regular cadence going. Uh, I'm very excited about our episode today because uh, you know the the thesis of this podcast is if we talk to enough intelligent people, uh, will we learn something about the relationship between design and growth and and how product experience and product design actually materially drives growth? Uh, we've had a chance to talk to a lot of product leaders in different fields. Uh, about about their takes on this stuff. And I'm excited today because uh, we have with us Scott Christensen. Um, Scott, thanks so much for being on the show with us. Um, Scott, you've uh, you've had you've had experience as a head of product design, uh, as as a founding designer at like a large enterprise like Expedia, uh, being a designer at a large enterprise like Expedia, and now you have your own design agency, uh, and and also uh, very interestingly, actually, are the community leader of of a community called Growth Designers. Uh, so I I think that you have a, an intimate understanding of the relationship between design and growth, which is why I'm really excited to have you on. Uh, before we delve into it, uh, I I would love for you to just give us uh, an intro of yourself, like walk us through your journey a little bit, um, because I think my guests always do a better job of introducing themselves than I do. Uh, and then uh, would love to love to pick your brain on a bunch of different things. For sure. Well, I just want to say thanks uh, both Rit and Tim for having me on the uh, the show here today. I've uh, listened to a couple of the episodes already and uh, definitely impressed with what you guys are doing here. So honored to be here. Um, a little bit about myself. Uh, yeah, like you mentioned, I've um, founded a, a growth design agency, a consultancy called Growth Designed. Um, and it's uh, something that I've been doing for close to about a year now, uh, about nine months. Um, and I have a, a handful of designers as affiliate designers who I uh, work with in, in that uh, from the community that I helped to co-found the Slack community, growthdesigners.co. Uh, we founded that about five, six years ago. And um, so, yeah, my agency, we we really focus on PLG growth motions for startups mostly. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, I have about 10 years experience total uh, working, like you said, at companies like Expedia, so large enterprise companies, uh, and then a handful of startups as well as head of design there. Um, uh, these startups, of course, um, uh, backed by some, some big VC names, but, um, but it's been fun to kind of see both sides of right. the, uh, kind of the the company size spectrum and how growth plays uh, in both. Because I was uh, working on growth tactics at both Expedia and as well as some of these smaller um, startups as well. Um, so I think right off the jump, right? Uh, and and we've, we've had a couple of other guests on that have had like, you know, an experience that spans like enterprise to startup to, to, to agency. And, and uh, what, what I would love to know is how is your understanding of the role of design at, at an organization evolved over time, right? Uh, and, and, and having having seen different snapshots, do you feel like you've been at places that have got it wrong? Do you feel like you've been at places that, that had, it, had it in a way that, you know, uh, that you hadn't really thought to think about design and you're like, oh, this is, this is pretty cool. I'm gonna carry this going forward. And just generally, how is your understanding of the role of design at an organization changed? Oh yeah, I mean, I think uh, more often than not, uh, I, I've learned from the negative experiences, the experiences uh -huh. that you don't uh, particularly want to have. And then all of a sudden you're like, uh, I, I kind of prescribed to the model of like, 
uh, unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence, uh, right? So you, you don't know what you don't know. And then all mm -hmm. of a sudden you're like, wait, I don't think this is the right way we should be doing this. Like, yeah. I'm conscious of the incompetence that's happening at this organization. And, right. uh, and then you learn, right? Like, I think mm -hmm. we all go through some of that pragmatic approach. Um, yeah. I've definitely seen that in my career where, you know, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, yeah, that's maybe not the, maybe I don't want to be here anymore. And that, I mean, that can take like a couple of years sometimes uh, to really see things clearly. Um, but to your question, I mean, all of these experiences are good. So if you're a designer or a PM or somewhere, you know, a product person who's in an organization and you've realized you, that light has gone off, that you're like, I don't think I should be here anymore. Or like, <laughs> I don't think this is giving me the experience that I want. Um, don't throw that all out. I mean, you've had great experiences up into that point and right. uh, you've learned, you've leveled up. And I felt that way in my career every time I've gone. Um, you know, I started at PwC, which is a large financial consultancy um, doing, you know, customer experience consulting. And then I, I figured out, I was like, I don't want to do customer experience. I want to do user experience. And so right. from that swish, uh, self-taught in, in the world of design, uh, spent more, you know, four more years there uh, and then moved to Expedia and then spent a couple of years there and realized, oh, you know, Expedia is great, um, but I want to go faster, right? Like right. it's just slow. So I went to startups and then at startups, I've been like, wow, this is amazing. I feel liberated, but I'm also like missing some, you know, uh, maybe some structure, right? Like right. It's, it's kind of ping pong back and forth. Um, but that's, it's, it's very much like a, a pragmatic approach that I've taken to, the, to my career. Got it. Um, so, uh, I think, I think what, what I would love to do is, is maybe work backwards, right? So, uh, if you could tell us just, you know, the audience a little bit about, about growth designers, sort of your idea behind like building the community and, and, and what the purpose of the community is, uh, I think. I think then we can delve a little bit more into into your thought processes behind like practices that that you would call growth design practices and why that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. I'll, I'll dive into that. Um, so first and foremost, I won't take I won't take credit for. I'll give credit where credits due. Um, the the community was largely start started by um, a woman named Lex Roman, uh, and she's really been the champion of it. If you Google growth design, her content's going to come up. Um, okay. So she's really the champion. When it comes to the community aspect, uh, I helped start the Slack group and have kind of championed it as she's uh, taken a, another career step in a different direction. And so from that, I've kind of taken the baton with um, three to four other um, co-leads. Um, so it's been uh, an awesome journey to, uh, to kind of grow this community. We have about 1,500 designers in the Slack community alone. And then our reach just in general is upwards to about six, 7,000 folks with our wow. uh, marketing efforts and things. So um, a lot of people out there are curious about growth design. Um, a lot of people fall into it is what we're realizing. And a lot of people kind of stumble into the community and realize, wow, these are my people. Like, yeah. uh, like, any, like any good community that serves a niche field. Um, so some of the mission uh, or the mission and some of the vision that we have is, uh, of course, a place for people to come and just kind of uh, like any community feel accepted and feel also like uh, people understand what they're going through, um, right. maybe commiserate on some things. Um, right. But along with that, also, we want to level up the community. Uh, so we've actually recently launched a what we call growth design school. Um, and this includes workshops, but it's it's really um, a five week 
um, in-person course uh, that we do um, three times a year. Uh, our, our next cohort is in uh, September. And uh, we are basically kind of leveling people up who join these. We have cohorts of about 40, 50 people who join. And um, yeah, it's a fun way to kind of level up the community and provide resources. We also do a monthly newsletter that comes out that's free, of course. Anybody can sign up for that. Uh, and that's actually kind of grassroots um, through the community. So we kind of want people to step up and share their experiences. Uh, we have case studies that we review. Um, you know, there's a lot of like altruistic um, kind of community building that happens just naturally, which mm -hmm. has been really fun to see. Um, but those are some of the kind of like the overarching mission is just to level up growth practitioners, whether you be new or older um, and years into your growth design career. Uh, we we want to help you and, and uh, uh, learn from you if you have the experience to share. That's awesome. Uh, and And I, you know. First of all, hats off. I think like at any point, like building and scaling a community is is a challenging task, right? Like for, for us on a practical basis, right, we have our proprietary panel of testers that we have to keep engaged and, and like, you know, keep them back and testing. And we understand the challenge of like growing and nurturing and keeping that engaged. So uh, hats off for the community that you've built. Um, what I'd love to know now is is what do you think of as as growth design and, and and like is everybody doing it and if for people that are not doing it right uh what, what is like what do they need to change like how do they need to think about growth design like when i'm when i'm saying uh hey you know it's it's design that drives growth even if i even if i put define it as that but as as a practice right how do you how, how is that something you emulate and uh you know inculcate in your design day to day and to, to just kind of briefly add to that, is it purely a difference in the mindset that you're approaching your design task with, or are there other components, other you know, specific skills or, or aspects that come into that, um, that, that take you from design to growth design? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And you, I think you both kind of alluded to it. Um, I think there's two, there's, there are two parts to it. First, it is a mindset, Tim. I think every designer has the opportunity and already kind of flexes into um, some growth design. It's just a matter of how much they do it. Um, and so as a product designer, um, I, I think, yes, you everyone has the opportunity to be a quote unquote growth designer. No one's going to say like uh, they're not going to like dub you and put two swords on the shoulders saying, saying like you are now a growth designer, sir, sir growth <laughs> designer, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, you, if you find passion in some of the, the aspects of growth design, which I'll go into, um, just claim it and, and be quote unquote a growth designer uh, and level up. I, I coach a handful of folks in the community and I've often given that advice that people will say like, well, how do I know I'm a growth designer and how do I, you know, lean, really lean it? I'm like, just, just do it. Just like own it and like put it as your title, like apply to those jobs. Right. Um, no one's going to give you the permission. You have to do it yourself. So that's the first thing. And then, Rit, to your earlier question, I'll, I'll kind of elucidate maybe some of the, the key differences between a traditional product designer and a growth designer. So right. first, um, first and foremost is impact. Okay. So a product designer is going to just is going to be deli delivering like really high quality user centric solutions, um, and oftentimes. Um, can be a little detached from metrics and we'll just kind of like wait for the metrics to come back and be like, oh, okay, great, cool. Like it is a success. Like we are larger companies uh, are going to like wait to roll it out. Uh, smaller startups are just going to ship it. Right. Um, and, you know, they're going to want to 
design all across the product. Um, a lot of it is just like basic capabilities that and feature sets that the company needs to build, right? Mm -hmm. Which are strategic in nature. However, a growth designer is someone who's going to focus on impact, okay? So metrics driven, they're gonna be very strategic in where they play uh, and where they design across the product experience. So they're not necessarily gonna own like a page or a product. They're gonna own, you know, across most, most likely they'll, they'll own areas and test across the entire experience. Mm -hmm. um, they'll focus on impact areas like onboarding, making sure that you increase your activation rates. They're gonna focus on engagement. So they're gonna make those empty states really engaging and uh, they're gonna make those educational so that you actually take, product, uh, take action in the product. Uh, you know, they're gonna focus on monetization and conversion. So they're going to you know, really dial in that pricing upgrade experience and they're gonna make sure that you have the right defaults. Uh, you'll, you'll test and tweak monthly versus annual pricing, uh, the UX of all of that. Um, and, and really dial in kind of the conversion aspect um, of, of a product. And so a lot of this comes into play with PLG, B2B SaaS. Also, all B2C companies are really just growth oriented and, and PLG inherently. And so you see growth really mm -hmm. um, as a defined role in both of those types of companies. Um, so do you think it'd be fair for me to say that um, like in a traditional, for like a traditional product designer, right? They, they, their exposure to the impact metrics is very much through the PM, right? Like the P, they're just like, hey, the product owner is the guy that cares about like the product success metrics and and all of that stuff. And you know, I'm just I'm being handed down like PRDs with design specifics, and and that's what I contend with. And my relationship is with the PM, and like the growth designer actually. I'm so sorry. This is like, this has been falling out of my ear all day. I think the earbuds are sized wrong. It's so strange, but uh, sorry. To, to, so yeah, the, the traditional designer see like, you know, their relationship is through the PM and the growth designer sort of is, is obviously like they're still working with some, some sort of product owner, but they're also actively thinking about the end outcome and, and the metrics, like what, when they're designing, is that, is, would you say that's a fair distinction? Yeah, I'd say that's fair. I would say, and it all depends on the company culture and, and kind of the triad setup in, in companies. Like, mm -hmm. um, I don't, I, I hope that not all product designers have to like go through their PM to reach strategic initiatives and like have those handed down. Uh, that makes it feel a little bit subservient of a relationship. Um, mm -hmm. But oftentimes that does happen. Um, I wonder, right. Right. Like, because PMs are spread across all these different teams. They're connected with everybody. They have that st strategy like embedded in their mindset. Uh, and sometimes design has to kind of wait for some of that direction to come through a roadmap. Um, mm -hmm. All that to say, I think designers uh, who focus on growth are PM inclined. Um, the best growth designers I've seen have the ability to really put on a product management hat and think strategically. They're more inclined to connect with marketing and brand and, uh, you know, some of those, uh, you know, top of funnel metrics uh, and, and really be more metric oriented and also connect with data science and make sure that they are able to te test and, and be able to uh, maybe even self-serve on some of uh, instrumenta instrumentation tools like Mixpanel or Amplitude or, you know, right. like, um, for instance, when I was at a early stage startup with, there was like 10 of us. I learned to write like really basic SQL queries because I was like, I need this data 
and I don't know how to get it. And so mm -hmm. I'm going to take this SQL class and I like wrote some very basic select star, you know, yeah, SQL queries so that I could find it. Now, were they right? I don't know, but <laughs> uh, I, I was able to find, you know, some data to get to get what right. So to your point, I think, yes, um, that distinction is true. Um, but you, you find a designer who is really um, strategically oriented around metrics and wants the data uh, to be data driven. And any designer can do this. And that's why I'm saying, you know, Tim, to your point, it is a mentality shift. Any designer can and should really be data driven so that you can get to your solutions and make impact faster. Got it. So besides that mindset shift, I, you know, you mentioned that you do some teaching of, of people how to become a growth designer. What are some of the other common areas where you tend to see people who are just wanting to become a growth designer, maybe coming from a design background, product design in a more traditional sense? What are some of the common uh, mm -hmm. misunderstandings or, or areas where there's um, kind of a, a lack of skills or knowledge or or some of the things that you see? Oh, this is what a bunch of people need to learn and figure out to become mm -hmm. a growth designer. Yeah, I think the first one that comes to my mind is scrappiness. OK, designers love pixel perfection. And rightfully so, like we created it, it's our baby. We want it to be, you know, implemented right. Right. Um, I think one of the biggest things that you need to learn as a growth designer is to ship to learn rather than, um, you know, shipped for shipping's sake and uh, shipping to launch rather. Like mm. as a growth designer, you're, you're just trying to learn. Like a failure is not a, is not a bad thing. Um, and to learn fast, you can't be really, you know, uh, posturing and, and, you know, going back and forth on, uh, on a pixel perfection. Sometimes you just got to get something out there and then test it, see what you get, uh, see what you learn and then refine it. Right. Like, uh, an iterative agile process, I think is one of the things that a lot of designers struggle with when they first jump into growth roles, um, because it kind of goes a little bit against like your natural intuition as a designer to make it look and feel just amazing. Right. Um, that's not to yeah. say that the quality has to go down. You can do great quality with speed. Um, it really depends on things like your design system and, you know, your relationship with your engineering team and making sure that you have like a really tight coupled partnership there to to really get to get um, high quality solutions out the door fast. Right. Yeah. And and I feel like, you know, you could you could obviously like validate certain like validate some of the, the like the motivational aspects of the design that you're doing, like without having it be like its most perfect iteration visually, right? You can, you can get, if you're able to get the functionality at least and validate that as how, how, it would, how it would drive something, I think you can kind of cut a lot of time um, before, before you, you know, build like yeah, just the most perfect iteration of it and exactly. get it out there. Yeah. yeah like, um, I mean, I've designed a, a, a half dozen onboarding flows at different products that I've been on and, having a onboarding flow is better than no onboarding flow, right? You right. just ask one question, uh, getting some data back from that. Like if that's the iterative, like if you're able to just get that out in like one sprint, then boom, like you're already getting some data. Don't fight for the whole full thing. Like that's okay. Like you can get, um, you can get those rolled out in subsequent sprints and along the way you'll, you'll be learning and tweaking and refining. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that, um, designers can struggle with is uh, is making sure that they want to get like the comprehensive vision already implemented. And it's like, wow, that's going to take, you know, a full quarter. Uh, and it's like, we could learn so much just in one sprint. Yeah. Got it. 
Um, so what I'd love to do now is kind of talk a little bit about um, what is the outcome of implementing like code design, and and I would love to do this from from the lens of like your, your agency, uh, right? Like if you could if you could walk us through uh, a case study, right, where where you've come in and and like you you've actually imp implemented like a growth design mentality or like you know take, or taking a growth design approach to solve a specific product design problem and and the impact of that because i think that might be really helpful for people that are listening to this podcast it's like mm -hmm. hey what is what do i get for being a growth designer right like what how does that how does that make it make things different uh and i think that might really help clear that up for people yeah i got it for sure um so yeah with um with growth design my agency that i that i've been running here the last uh nine months or so we um, we definitely focus on all the whole funnel, different areas of growth, um, but by, by and large, we focus mostly on acquisition. I feel like that's one of the lowest hanging fruits um, because every user touches your acquisition funnel, 100% goes yeah. onboarding, right? Yeah. Um, and so one client in particular that I worked with earlier this spring was a B2C healthcare startup that was focused on... Um, basically monetizing and democratizing your data. So you could essentially sign up for um, an account and you could connect all your health portals to it. Uh, and then those health portals and the reports that you have could essentially be monetized in a way and you could control your health data. Mm -hmm. uh, you could sell it to certain vendors um, and be able, it's, it's like a massive vision. I think it's really cool. Yeah. A lot of these startups where you like are the owner of your data and you're able to then as the owner of it, you're able to give permissions uh, to to affiliates to then use it for things. And so, like this B2C healthcare startup was trying to, uh, you know, connect you with clinical trials and things like that if you had tests that were relevant for them. Um, mm -hmm. So, anyways, so onboarding was huge because you had a lot of different things to jump through, a lot of hoops to jump through um, to connect all your different portals um, and be able to like understand the value uh, really quickly and um, so what I did from uh, with this uh, client specifically was um, dig into their data with them. We we looked at the churn and the fall off rates, um, and just audited. I did. I have an audit template that I could share um, maybe later on the call or or just via a link. But I have a template that I run through with clients uh, mm -hmm. to basically audit um, and, and make sure that you're hitting kind of like. Um, key checkpoints in yep. your onboarding flow. Uh, and so I went through that with them, found you know two to three major hotspots. Uh, segmentation and profiling questions was a big one. So you know what what does that mean? So that means like uh, you go through any modern PLG uh, tool today and they'll ask you, uh, sure, you know you'll create an account, you'll get your uh, email and name. but they'll also ask you just like a couple questions to get to know you. It's like a dialogue right. right? It's yeah. like Hey, you know, um, what industry are you in, or what's your company size? Um, you know, all these things. What's your what's your title and, and role? And every single one of those questions is so huge uh, because you can start to segment and profile that customer throughout the remainder of their experience. So if you sign up and you're like, I'm a developer and I'm using Airtable, it's like, okay, cool. Let's see how developers across the board now use Airtable. So you get really salient data points as a business. Right. Um, you can start to profile and learn a lot from those companies. And so what eventually we were able to do with this company is after launching it, we increased activation flows. We were able to capture some really salient data points and then we were able to create even more 
kind of comprehensive um, personas uh, that we then started to design more features for later in the experience, uh, as well as growth tactics to help them convert. That's that's awesome. Uh, I, for me, I, I think what's interesting is, uh, you know, having having done the startup thing ourselves, I I feel like if you if you're early stage, you're actually better off taking a growth design approach to things because you're most li you're more likely to build systems that are going to have uh, like a solid like auto eye focused design than than like just designing for like an ideal, right? Uh, which, which yeah, I mean, you know, we, I know that Tim and I have done it in, in, in our experience with, with building the tool. And I feel, I feel like for startup founders, right? It, thinking about the value of design, the way I start thinking about it is, it is one of the main ways you can actually reduce your customer acquisition costs. Taking a growth design mindset to your onboarding and activation flows is how you're going to reduce your customer acquisition costs, which is something that you know VCs care about and and like you know potential acquirers care about. What's your CAC to LTV ratio, right? Like and and being able to design for making sure more people of the number of people hitting the site, more people are signing up. Of the people that are signing up, more of them are being exposed to the value proposition. Like these things, right? Uh, I, th I think are so valuable. And and if you're able to get them right earlier on, that right, you're setting yourself up for success more more so than if you, uh, you know, try and inculcate it after the fact. It's it's kind of harder to retool. Uh, exactly. Would you would you agree with that as an assessment? I would. Yeah, I think growth design, of course, isn't like we talked about. It is a mentality that you can and you can and should implement in in startups. Um, it's a little bit different as you go up upstream um, and upscale into enterprise companies. It gets a little bit more refined um, and targeted as to how it, how it works in in practice. Uh, I've put together I, I have a thought piece out there that I put a, a published uh, on growthdesigners.co um, back in March that it kind of showcases this the differences between a product designer at or a growth designer at a startup versus an enterprise company uh, and some of the nuances there. But in large part, you can do it in both. It's just gonna be a little bit different. You're gonna mix growth design with product, just traditional product design more fluidly. It may mm -hmm. be like a 20 to 80 ratio um, at a smaller company, like, cause you just need to do a lot of feature delivery and just like mm -hmm. core, core capabilities that you need to design and, and really get shipped to, uh, to market. Uh, versus later in a company's life cycle, you're going to be refining and tweaking and really optimizing because maybe they have a lot of the core capabilities already built out and a lot of the, the true value that they provide just needs to get to market and uh, or they need to um, connect with the user more fluidly and more self-service education, things like that um, in, a, in a later stage company like Expedia. And that's what I did when I was there. I, I focused on self-service, education, and help. Uh, and, and being able to really connect the value that we provided with users um, on their own. Got it. So earlier, you know, we were talking about what goes into that mindset and, and um, what one of the points was that scrappiness where rather than waiting to get pixel perfect, you push it out, see what happens and then iterate on that. Now, one thing I was thinking, and, and I'm glad we got to this because I, I imagine that's harder to do at a big, you know, uh, sophisticated enterprise. Obviously, that kind of push it out and see what happens goes very well hand in hand with the startup ethos. But is it still possible to achieve something like that in a large enterprise? Um, or, or how do you do that differently when you're in that larger uh, context? Yeah, it's it's a little bit more challenging. You have a little you play a little bit more political bound. You have to like be a little bit uh, 
of a, um, yeah, I, I don't know, arbiter uh, of, of like an advocate. Yeah. yeah, an advocate. You have to do a lot of um, evangelizing, I would say. When I was at Expedia, I did, um, I worked horizontally across the product pillars and uh, would essentially, one of our express goals was to try to influence other people to do self-service tests mm -hmm. and growth tests um, rather than just do it ourselves because we couldn't do it all. Right. Like there's right. so many different, there's so much low hanging fruit. Like we could point it out and be like, Hey guys, like you've got to, you got to work on this. Like, can you please you know, get this yeah. prioritized on your roadmaps? Um, and, uh, you know, because it's going to have X, Y, Z, um, impact. Right. And I think that's probably part of the cell, uh, in a larger organization is the cool thing about growth design is that you can often have like an ROI attached to it. Uh, and you can have like an estimated like lift that you may gain. Um, if you've done enough tests, you may be able to get targeted enough to know uh, and have like an estimated even dollar amount like range. I've seen that happen with different A-B tests. Um, there's a company out there called Spiro that has a template uh, that they advocate for for getting down to the, the monetary lift that uh, a test could, could provide. So, um, but yeah, to your question though, it, it is different in a larger organization. A lot of times you have to play in other people's codes, code bases and, and in their uh, sandboxes. And so you have to take things um, a little bit more politically. And, uh, you know, you are a guest sometimes in other people's sandboxes. Mm -hmm. If and, that, and I will caveat that. Uh, I know this is a long answer. but I will caveat that by saying um, some teams give growth kind of full autonomy and full reign. Other teams operate in like growth as a service. Okay. So like growth as a service is horizontal and they're kind of able to maneuver and they don't really have like defined ownership. Mm -hmm. um, however, there's a hybrid that I think works best uh, is that you can own certain pillars of the product like onboarding, like that's your code base. You touch that your engineers own it and you play across the entire experience as well, or you own fully checkout. Like you guys, own it uh, all up. You are the conversion monetization team, and that is your area. And then you also work on the placements uh, where you can upsell across the product as well. So kind of a hybrid growth as a service as well as like growth ownership. Right. Um, I, I'm curious, right? Do you, do you see, can you kind of templatize a growth design playbook for a PLG motion for let's say, it, let's even stratify like B2B SaaS, right? Uh, are you able to be like, hey, you know, if you're B2B SaaS, do you guys want to, you know, do, do you want like, do you focus on uh, activation plus onboarding and value prop? And here's, here's like just some across the board best practices to do it. Or do you feel like it's pretty it's pretty bespoke or do you have to like tailor make the design like you know the growth design approach for each company based on who the who you know who the target demographic is and, and stuff I, I understand like you know there's obviously wild differences between b2c and b2b but yeah. uh and, and things like that but if you're just even if you narrow it down to b2b SaaS, and then that's obviously huge still uh do you are you able to templatize some practices or how bespoke is it i guess yeah i think it comes down to a couple big strategic levers that you pull uh, yeah. Maybe SaaS specifically, you can, you know, you can pull a couple different um, big strategic pillars like community and content could be one, mm -hmm. right? Like, right. and that can funnel you into a certain type of um, PLG growth design motion 
uh, of a product, um, or you could have, um, you know, fully self-serve and discovery viral virality, um, you know, user-generated content that that shares, um, you know, that that propagates, um, you know, shares. Uh, and so I think some of those big key strategic pillars will define how you then onboard and activate, engage, and convert your users. Um, but but to your answer, yes, I think there are like some clear templated ways. That's why you see certain um, industry or certain PLG tools that look and feel similarly and convert right. similarly, right? Like there's some really good best practices out there. You don't have to look too far to see those best practices in action. And once you see enough of them, you're like, oh, okay, there's, there's patterns here. Um, and there's definitely like best practices for sure. Now, it, can you like do out of the can? Um, no, like it's always going to be nuanced um, for everybody's product, um, making sure that you have, uh, you know, the business needs and the user needs catered towards. But I think there's, you know, there's some standard questions that you could ask during onboarding for sure. Um, there's certain types of go-to-market value props that you should be iterating throughout the product. And then, uh, of course, like monetization and conversion can all kind of look and feel similarly as well. But I think there's always going to be um, some nuance, but but yeah, I think there's, the answer is yes to both. <laughs> um, yeah, and 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 you know the the reason why I, I ask this is and and as I'm thinking about it, right? Uh, for us uh, with with a usability testing platform, what we realized is there's a massive there, there's like a massive barrier to, to exposing the core like the value prop, like the aha value prop of the platform to people that are signing up because. The, just the activity of like building a usability test involves like a fair degree of user input, right? It takes takes a while for people to actually like sit down and build a test. So someone that signs up for a free trial, it might not necessarily be that they have a test in mind that they they're, that they're already like, hey, I ha I want to run this right today. So you sign up for the free trial, but it's not necessary that you want to run the test today. So it's like, okay, I need to do these things to get these people early. You might not know if if how to test, like we, we can't make any assumptions, right? So I have to know, is this someone that doesn't even know how to run a usability test, read somewhere that they should do this for their website, like an e-commerce store owner, and can I give them all the tools they need to build a successful usability test? Is it someone that's using like another platform that's trying to like see if we have as many capabilities or how our capabilities differ? Because that's a different use case, right? Uh, versus someone that's like, okay, I have a usability test I need to run now, Right. In which case they can like go in and plug it in and run it. So we have to constantly think about like, how do we like, how do we motivate people to see yeah. uh, the value prop of, of our tool? And um, in, in, in your opinion, right, for company, for tools that require, let's say, like user input. So even a CRM, right? Like, I think you see the value prop of a CRM only after you put your data in there, right? Or, uh, or even like an email marketing tool. Like, it's, you only see the value prop of it after you've kind of plugged it up uh, and they maybe hooked it up API-wise, and you have like you know the leads filtering in and things like that. How do you, how do you use design to inculcate adoption, right? Do you, do you have like a, do you, do you have like a thought process around this? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Reforge talks about setup moments um, before you get to an aha moment. And mm -hmm. the setup moment is the key activation point where you've done, the user has done what they've needed to do to then get value from the product. And so to your point of connecting like an API or, uh, you know, uploading a CSV of, of data for like a, an Airtable or something, 
um, that's something that you can completely design towards. Um, you know, it's done with um, self-service education. There's, you know, empty states that say, hey, you know, let's teach you what your next step is. There's, of course, we, we see pop-ups, we see the, the tool tips and the tours and all that kind of thing. Um, you know, there's a lot of digital adoption tools that this is their bread and their butter to get you to right. these setup moments. Uh, app cues, user flow, um, walk me, walk me, me, chameleon. There's there's so many pendo, like you name them. There, it's a really hot space and has been for the last five years or so. And um, if you're not using them, I, I, you should because it's a really easy way and it's it's a growth uh, growth designer's dream to be able to just launch those and learn as quickly as you can. Um, uh -huh. So if you're, if you're wanting to to make impact, you can do that really quickly that way. Um, but yeah, to your point, I think that's one way that designers can can really make an impact there. Um, but yeah, leaning leading towards that setup moment, um, and that's usually done measured in like a way of like x amount of users in, in y amount of time have uploaded whatever, right? Like that's that's the kind of measurement that you're trying to aim towards via the design. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, I. For, and then how do you how do you so what do you do when you realize, okay, there's there's drop off happening? Okay, let's say you know I've, I've I've taken a look at this metric and hypothetically I'm realizing like okay, a bunch of people are signing up for my free trial, uh, you know, let's say a hundred people are signing up for my free trial. About uh, fifty of them are actually building a test template, but only only uh, thirty of them are launching it out, and fifteen of them are coming back and like interacting with the results once they're back in right so like the fifth like those 15 you could think of as like you know they've seen the aha moment now you know they're like product qualified and more likely to purchase uh but but how do i at at different stages how do i be like okay well here's here's how i'm going to design towards this stage do, do you uh do you enact like a user research process at that juncture or like what kind of discovery are you doing at that juncture uh, what are you doing to understand, like, hey, what can I do to fix here? Exactly. Yeah. We, we, um, what we'll do is whenever we find the fall off, everyone knows where the fall off is. It's not hard to find that. Right. Uh, uh, you know, your, your quantitative metrics will tell you what's happening, but they're not going to tell you why. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, unless you have like really amazing quantitative metrics that can tell you like what a user's thinking, but like that's pretty much impossible. And so from that, I mean, you can really start to hone in on, um, on that experience and that point in the experience. So if you have like something like full story, um, you know, funnel sessions down to that point where you're seeing fall off, just watch them on repeat. Watch uh, what I've done in, in uh, organizations past is like, I just got the team together. We do a full story watch party and we watch people falling off for like an hour straight. And <laughs> love that, like you, it's painful. So painful. Yeah. It's not, you're like cringing. You're like, oh man, I can't believe this is happening. Right. And uh, you're like, you come out of that with some hypotheses for sure. And from that, you can create scripts. You can use tools like Trimata to then source and, and run your um, you know, user research and, and derive insights and then test. Just go right back to the drawing board and start to tweak and try to refine that, that follow-up rate or that follow-up point in the flow. Got it. Um, what, I guess, what one thing I mean, and this is this is a recurring theme. It's like you know the set. It's the it's the sexiest thing to talk about right now is is like the role of AI. And I mean, right now it's large language models primarily uh, that 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 people are talking about. I think I think AI has like a lot of applicability 
to to in content growth, but especially by by like accelerating setup moments. I think AI has like a lot of utility there, and also maybe accelerating or or, or like underscoring aha moments, right? So we're looking at using AI to analyze video data, for example, right? Or or using AI to assist with building test scripts, for example. Like those are the two areas that we're really focused on application-wise. Um, do you do you think that people should like just be like, all right, like let's, you know, if if I have a setup moment, I should be adding AI to it to fix to like you know accelerate it, or or because I feel like everyone just like, oh, dude, we should be doing this AI thing too. There's like a FOMO. Like, how do you how do you know if like th this is something that's going to be accretive to your experience or actually kind of yeah. detrimental to it? You know what I say? Just sprinkle some AI on it, and you're good. You know, I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I'll be honest. I'm not, I'm not like an AI expert. I, I will not. Yeah, yeah. I use Chat GPT to like, you know, yeah, like any, sure. any normal person would probably use it. Um, so, yeah. I, all jokes aside, though, I do think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, I can imagine there's a lot of ways that you can shortcut the, the experience, whether that be a conversational UI or dynamically served questions based on answers, based on what uh, you know the AI can understand about this user coming in. Maybe you're not serving the exact same questions. Maybe that's actually uh, really stale. Maybe that's something that you could be a lot more smart about. There could be some really op cool opportunities about dynamic questions that you're asked to then funnel more intelligently uh, to get people to a setup moment even faster. So I think right. you're, I think you're you're right on. I think in five years from now, you know, we'll look back and say like, oh, static questions, like how dumb, or yeah. or static experiences that don't personalize. Um, that's so you know, uh, old school, right? Like right. Um, pre AI days. And yeah. So, yeah. Like I, I think there's a lot of opportunity. I can't even really grok what those would be but like that's definitely one i think getting people to the setup, setup moment and into the aha moment and then yeah like reiterating the value for it um saying like hey you know here's um here's the value that we provided and this is what how your life is easier from it um for sure i think there's some great opportunities there uh, um now i'm just switching gears slightly uh with with the growth of design community right like you, you know you've mentioned that uh, you, you've recently started the growth design school and, and, and things like that. And we've had, we've had people on, uh, the show, right. Where there's, and I, and I don't think there's like a right or wrong to this, right. There's, there's approaches where people are like, look, you know, the design is, is like a stratified academic pursuit, right? And and you know you gotta go get that HCI degree and do it that way. Uh, we've had we've had people on the show that are like, look, any, anybody can design. There's you know design design is for everyone, and, and you know democracy. There's people that that cringe on that notion, and there's everywhere in between. Uh, you know, having been self-taught yourself, what do you what do you see as like like if if I'm if I'm someone that is interested in getting into design, right? Like, what is that? What does that pathway look like? And and do you feel like, you know, uh, when 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 you're in the community, like, how do you how do you get someone to like level up their design skills? Because uh, I don't think there's like a one size fits all solution, really, or like this is the way to do it. But I'd love to get your take on like, hey, here, here's what, you know, here's how you you set out to become a growth designer. Yeah. 
couple questions in there, and so maybe I'll just take them one at a time. But the first question you were asking about is, you know, maybe the difference between an academic background versus like uh, school of hard knocks, uh, self taught mm -hmm. kind of thing. I think there's room for both. I think that organizations um, think about the organ, maybe rather than like uh, the path, like what think about what feels normal and natural for you. Mm -hmm. um, if you're one who wants to go slow and and take uh, you know, a really intellectual approach to it, there's room for you. You'll probably fit into a larger organization like a Microsoft and Amazon. Um, and you might feel um, really comfortable there. Um, myself, I like to see a little bit more, um, I like to go a little bit faster and I like to see more than just like uh, an isolated area. Um, and so that's why I chose the route that I did. Um, being more self-taught, I didn't need, feel the need to go to a uh, boot camps are, eh, I don't, I don't really go into boot camps, but, um, I think they're good to get you oriented. Um, but mm -hmm. you know, I think that it's one of the, it's one of these things that I think design can is ever evolving. Uh, and you yourself can level up to your second question of like how design can level up, uh, designers can level up. What, what I've seen is thinking outside of the designs, uh, silo. So, and that's where growth design, I think comes into play, right? Like, um, as a designer who designs for delivery and, and maybe thinks solely about like design is the most important thing in an organization, guess what? I got a newsflash for you. It's not. Okay. There's a lot of organizations that, uh, you know, don't prioritize design and unfortunately, and, and they still have a great product, right? There's like 10,000 designers that want to know your location right now. They're, they're the, they're <laughs> I've, of the anti, I, I feel like I have like a bullet bullseye on my back, but um, really though, like design is not design for design's sake is, is really not what we're trying to do here. Like we are trying to marry user and business needs and provide true value, right? right. Design, design for value creation. And I know that may seem buzzwordy, but like, you know, it when you see it, when someone's really isolated and focused on like, uh, again, like pixel, pixel perfection is amazing. And I think it's, it, it is important, uh, but it's not the end all be all, right? People still use tools that maybe aren't um, pixel perfect. Um, like Craigslist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh... Again, could be because it served a value, like, and yeah. granted there's like UX is a, is a strategic lever in a lot of B2C, like, or in B2B SaaS, especially nowadays. In the last 10 years, we've really seen that kind of flourish um, and it's table stakes now. So like, I'm yeah. not, I'm not saying that design is not, uh, design will always be important for pretty much every organization going forward because we are all normalized to great software and we will, we all want that B2C kind of flavor in our uh, work tooling. So, yeah. and that's, that's like, I'm, this is like way old, like everybody knows this, we're all attuned to this. Um, but what I'm trying to, I guess what I'm trying to get at is uh, the more you can think outside of design, the more you're going to excel as a designer. The more you can lean into understanding our go-to-market strategy in your organization, the more you understand data science, product managers, customer success, support, and the more you have connection with them, the more embedded you're going to be across cross-functionally and the more relevant you're going to be to the company at large. And you're going to be able to get to solutions way faster, uh, way, way faster. And that's the that's a senior designer. That's a you know staff and principal designer as you kind of excel. Um, you don't need to be, you know, like, 
super outgoing or you don't need to like change your nature at all. Like if you're an introvert, um, you don't need to do that, but you do need to be able to know who to connect with and actively connect with them to get to your solutions faster. Awesome. You know, it strikes me that, that probably that answer goes beyond just being a good designer. I mean, it really, in any role and whatever you're doing, if you work to be well-rounded and know about the things that aren't directly what you're responsible for, but that maybe touch it or are adjacent to it, it's going to level up your work, whatever you're working towards, I think. 100%. I've heard the phrase that every role eventually becomes sales. <laughs> not, to, not to say that like sales is the peak, like we all want to be salespeople, but like, think about it though. Like you may have great experiences uh, or may, you may have like great um, intel, but if you're not able to like sell that within the organization and propagate that and, and get by yeah. it, then like it's just going to sit there in a research library that has, that gathers dust. Right. Yeah. Um, I think, I think we're, I mean, this has been an awesome episode, Tim, I think we're like nearing our time. So do you want to, do you want to yeah. take us home? Let's, let's do it. Uh, so uh, Scott, thank you so much for coming on here and joining us and, and chatting about growth and design. You've been uh, the, the exact match as far as guess of what we talk about on here, what we want to know, what we want to learn. So this has been a real treat to talk to you. Uh, and I'm sure our listeners have been learning a ton. I know me and Rid have been learning a ton from this conversation. For sure. Um, really appreciate uh, you you coming on and sharing your perspective and experience with us. Uh, before we do wrap up, I'll give you a minute to, to plug whatever you want to plug. Let the uh, listeners know about whatever you know, you want to uh, let them know about. Yeah, for sure. Uh, really just one thing is growth design school. I love, I have a passion for educating users about uh, and, and designers about uh, growth design. And so just go to growthdesignschool.com uh, and you can sign up there. Our next cohort starts in uh, September on September 6th. Awesome. We'll share that link in the comments for this uh, LinkedIn uh, podcast episode as well for, for anyone who wants to find that easily. All right. Uh, I think with that, we can go ahead and end this episode. Uh, everyone that's tuning in, we'll be back same time, same place uh, a week from today. So we hope to see you again for the next episode. Have a good one. See ya. Bye. Thanks.